Low-risk investments generally have low returns, and by law, the Postal Service must invest retiree assets in U.S. Treasury securities. The Office of Inspector General took a look at how much USPS would have had. Now, with a stock and bond mix, wow. We get more now from research specialist Joy Sanzone. And Ms. Sanzone, good to have you on. Great. Thanks for having me, Tom. And you looked at this, I guess, academically, because by statute, if that's how they have to invest their retirement funds, that's how they have to invest them. So what caused you to take a look here at what they would have had by now if they had a 60-40% stock bond mix? Sure. So this work builds on prior OIG work that has done similar work looking into retiree assets. Uh, Several years ago, the OIG did a paper uh, that looked forward, whereas the paper we're talking about today was a historical look. We looked forward at the potential impact of investing funds today and what the impact would be in 20 years. And the impact, uh, a similar bottom line to this paper is that the impact would be significant for the Postal Service with even a modest amount of diversification. This was also a board request to look into this. um, And we were interested to just see what would the Postal Service have had today had they invested as much as 50 years ago and compare that to their actual investment strategy. All right. So at the end of fiscal 2022, they had $298 billion in Correct to pay out retirees. And Mm -hmm. before we get to what they would have had, is that enough to cover their future liabilities? No. uh, So their current balance is $298 billion, but their current liability for future retiree benefits is $394 billion. So almost $100 billion unfunded liability. Yeah. And so I guess their name is Legion in that respect. (laughs) We have this kind of time bomb across the government, across Mm -hmm. the country, really. And so if they had invested... At what point in time did you calculate from and what would they have had today with a more diversified portfolio? Sure. So we looked back as much as 50 years. So we looked at CSRS, FERS, and the Postal Service Retiree Health Benefits Fund, which are the three retirement programs the Postal Service participates in. For CSRS, we look back to 1972, which is when the postal post office department became the Postal Service. For FERS, we look back to 1988, which was the year the fund started. And for the Health Benefits Fund, looked back to 2007, which is the year that fund started. So again, as much as 50 years. And what we found was that across those three retirement programs, the Postal Service could have had $1.2 trillion across those three funds if they had invested in a mix of 60% stocks and 40% bonds. So they would have had three times their liabilities at this point, and that money could then be available to, I don't know, sit there or <laughs> hire more postal people? Or what could they do with that money if they had that much of a surplus? Yeah, there, there's a lot of potential financial implications for the Postal Service. Um, as you said, investing in its workforce is a potential use of that money. They could also invest in their processing and delivery network. They, there's also potential it could, in the future, minimize price increases. So the Postal Service must cover its costs through revenue, and obviously retirement expenses are a significant cost. So minimizing those expenses going forward could help minimize price increases as well. Right. And doing this exercise, though, is like pretending you won the lottery, imagining what you would do if you had all that money. It's kind of academic because there's no gambit that I'm aware of in Congress to allow them to invest any differently than they have now, right? Correct. It's come up a couple of times, um, but it has not been included in any of the postal reform legislation. 
But is that the purpose of the research to kind of tell Congress, well, if you wanted to change it, here's what is likely to happen? Right. So uh, the goal of this paper was really to be informative. We, we didn't give any recommendations to the Postal Service, but we wanted this to be informative for the Postal Service, for Congress and any other postal stakeholders of, as you said earlier, the opportunity lost uh, and what the potential is going forward for investing retiree assets. We're speaking with Joy Sanzone. She's a research specialist with the Postal Service Office of Inspector General. And I'm looking at, at the chart at some of the other investment funds that you mentioned or, or funds that you mentioned, the FERS and also the uh, the uh, CSRS, of which there are still a few you know beneficiaries around. They'll be around mm-hmm. for, we hope, quite a number of years. And they also have pretty bad deficits with respect to their future payouts. So, yes. So for CSRS, the deficit currently is about $41 billion. Uh, for FERS, it's about $32 billion. And for the Health Benefits Fund, about $24 billion in deficit. So total across the three is a deficit of about uh, $96 billion. Right. And that gets back to that liability that the Postal Service has versus what it has on hand. So what do mm-hmm. postal planners say about this? I mean, they must – I mean, this is – the sustainability of finances at the Postal Service has been a subject of some discussion now for probably 20 years. And there was a little bit of reform last year. But as the Postmaster General says, they're still not out of the woods because the network is changing and the revenue sources are changing. Everything else is changing also. So mm-hmm. how, how could postal planners use this information to change things, do you think? Yeah, well, again, this was meant to be an informative paper about what what is the potential of investing. Um, and it goes along with prior OIG work that looked to the future and projected what they could have had if they had invested. Um, the Postal Service would need to request, you know, congressional action would be required since this current investment strategy is dictated by law. So Congress would need to take action to allow the Postal Service to invest any differently. And looking at this from the standpoint of an individual postal employee, the FERS retirement that they'll have, the ones currently working or some of the old timers maybe you know, on retirement in their SERS program, the other component – well, let's talk about FERS. The mm-hmm. other component is Social Security, which they would have, and of course TSP. So really mm-hmm. for the average person, your findings reinforce the fact that the average investor, employee, needs to plow as much as they can, as aggressively as they feel comfortable into their TSP to compensate for the anemic postal general pension funds. Yeah, I think that's a great observation. Our paper doesn't get into the implications of, you know, in the future of, you know, currently these funds have an unfunded liability, um, but we don't get into anything about the, the benefits for individual employees. That's really outside the scope, but that's a, that's a great observation about the TSP. And you're an individual postal employee. What is your strategy for, I mean, you're still pretty young, judging from the picture I'm seeing on Zoom, but someday you'll retire. What's what? How do you approach it? <laughs> um, I'm not really sure how to answer that question. Um, <laughs> but you have a TSP account, I, I do, presume. I do. And so that's where you, you play around and see what you can get to maximize investments, fair? Yeah, that, that's that's my personal goal, yes. All right. Well, I, I think, you're, 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 again, your name is Legion here. And have you had any reaction to this study, to this paper, saying, hey, look, guys, if this were the case, that would be the outcome? Again, academic, but any response yet? Yeah. So this has actually come up with the Board of Governors at their recent meeting. And actually, in fact, it came up at the Postmaster General's testimony last week, which I think really underscores the importance of this issue. 
uh, PMG DeJoy was asked a question about this, observing that there's currently 298 billion in the fund where they could have had the 1.2 trillion. Uh, and the, the PMG really underscored that uh, this would be incredibly significant for the Postal Service were it to happen. So I think that it came up then really underscores how big this might be. Joy Sanzone is a research specialist with the Postal Service Office of Inspector General. Thanks so much for joining me. Great. Thank you so much, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Have the Federal Drive delivered to your device. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Looking Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Looking Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. 
it's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. 
at the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.